weeks ago, I was in New Zealand to worship with an Anglican congregation that were composed of people of Maori ancestry. And these are people that are indigenous to um, New Zealand, like the Native Americans are to uh, the United States. And again, it was just so thrilling to see and hear the Bible and the Word of God and a Christian liturgy spoken not just in English, but in the, the native Maori, Maori language as well. Just uh, so very similar to how we as a congregation here are moving towards uh, speaking more and more Spanish uh, at our congregation, uh, in our services here. And I was in New Zealand to meet and to partner with the Anglican Indigenous Network, which is a network of indigenous Christians from around the world, not just in New Zealand, but all through Polynesia, uh, including the, as well as uh, anywhere where indigenous populations are located, like the First Nation tribes of Canada and, and also throughout Latin America and other parts of the world. And we're partnering together to do research on spiritual formation. And we're asking questions like the following. What does Christian spiritual maturity look like from global and indigenous perspectives? So I learned, for example, that connection with our land or ancestral land, as well as stewardship of our land, is a vital facet of Maori culture. So much so that when the Maoris uh, introduce themselves, they start with sharing their name and then their tribe and then the land from which their ancestors are from. Right. So, um, and when they uh, invited me to introduce myself, they asked me to, to share that information as well. And that's something that I'm not used to as an, uh, a Chinese American. Of, of uh, I'm used to the you know my name and, and perhaps my you know ancestry, but not so much my land. And they were thrilled to hear that I'm I can trace my uh, lineage back to Mongolia. Um, and that's kind of where my, you know, at least my dad's side, uh, uh, ancestral lands from, because they're also considered an indigenous, indigenous people. And from our, and, and by the way, um, the men in the culture greet each other by nuzzling their noses with each other. So we kind of, you know, so the personal space is very different in that culture. And I was feeling a little stuffy, so I felt bad because I was kind of nuzzling guys' noses. And, it was, and we felt really close afterwards. I felt like, you know, it's really, really wonderful. <laughs> we should, some of us should try this out, you know, after service, if you guys are open to this. <laughs> um, and also, and during our conversation together, we, we learned that the care, things like the care of the land and the care of the earth is actually part of the understanding of how they live out their faith. Right? So much so that their engagement with uh, fighting against climate change, their engagement advocating for proper stewardship of our natural resources, that's how they live out their faith and how they see uh, their picture and vision, uh, rightly so, of uh, what it looks like to be spiritually mature. And we as a church leadership here at One Life City Church, we're also thinking a lot about what it means to cultivate uh, spiritual maturity in our context here as well. Because we're really interested in cultivating not just, um, not just growing in numbers, but really cultivating deep uh, maturity among our members as well. And that's in part why we uh, preach on so many different topics throughout the year. That's in part why we have so many people who speak up here. We have a teaching team of eight to 10, and uh, Lord willing, that might, be, uh, that might grow over time. Uh, because we believe that a good way to cultivate spiritual maturity is to hear multiple voices, learn from multiple perspectives, and to learn and, and to hear topics, uh, multiple kinds of topics, right? And that's why uh, for some part of our year, we'll preach straight from the Word of God and we'll, we'll make sure that we have an Old Testament book as well as a New Testament book that we preach through. 
That's why we also teach and practice on uh, things like lament and other spiritual disciplines. That's why we also teach and practice on things like justice and, um, and peacemaking. And in this series, um, and as you guys have noticed already, we're talking about different theological topics, right? Related to Christian theology, Christian philosophy, as well as church history. And that's the purpose of this current teaching series that we're titling Theological Formation, because this too is a part of our holistic formation into the image of Christ. So we're going to nerd out a little bit this part of the year, but just for four weeks. <laughs> and uh, as a quick aside, um, my understanding, and you don't have to agree with me on this, um, but my understanding on the formation of a mature Christian is that it's holistic, that it's, it's, it involves our whole selves. And it also involves at least four dimensions. And the four dimensions include the following. Uh, it includes our spiritual formation, which has to do with our relationship with God, a lot of the practice of our spiritual disciplines as well. It includes our human formation, which has to do with our maturity as human beings, right? Uh, and that includes things like our, our relational maturity, our emotional maturity, our intercultural formation. It also includes our intellectual formation. So that has to do with our knowledge of scripture, of theology, of church history, and also has to do with pastoral formation. That has to do with ministry skills, like how to lead a Bible study, how to bring someone into the faith, how to disciple and mentor people, and so on and so forth, how to do spiritual direction. I know a lot of people are uh, here uh, have um, backgrounds in that. And, and friends, I can talk about this uh, four-part structure, four-dimensional structure of formation for a long, long time. Um, but for today, I just want to Im briefly introduce this framework to you all so that one, that you know that our church is serious about forming the whole person, and two, so that you can kind of locate the purpose of this series in the, the grand scheme of things, that we, we, we also want to include the intellectual formulation alongside all the other things as well. And I'm happy to note that Vivian approves of this, uh, of this topic as well, because both she and I believe that whenever I'm up here, I usually just talk about my emotions and about mental health and about depressing stuff, because I'm also a psychologist. And um, it's good to balance things out a little bit. So I'm going to be a little bit nerdy today uh, just to balance things out because that's also an important part of our faith. So, uh, and I also agree to this, so, so here we go. So a few weeks ago, um, Pastor Jay Lee spoke on um, different approaches and different uh, understandings of uh, how uh, God has atoned uh, us of our sins, so different atonement theories. Last week, uh, Pastor Elliot talked about different perspectives on baptism. And this week, we're going to talk about the canon of Scripture, right? So did you know that the Bible is actually not just one book, but rather a collection of 66 different books? And these 66 different books are written by different authors who lived in different parts of the world, across different centuries in history. And these books are actually written in three different languages. So it's written, parts of it, it's written in Hebrew, parts of it are written in Aramaic, and parts of it are written in Greek. And um, if you're familiar with uh, these languages, they're really different, right? So, um, for example, interpreting Greek grammar is a lot, it's, it's very um, precise. It's a lot like uh, written kind of like a computer uh, pro programming language. I used to be a software engineer, so Greek made sense to me, right? 
Uh, on the other hand, Hebrew is written like poetry. So it's very, uh, you know, the, you have words and it's really up to the, the reader to kind of interpret the meanings between the words, right? But these are nuances that we can't really tell because we just read the English Bible, right? We just read all this stuff uh, translated to English. And I'm wondering if any of you have ever wondered how it came to pass that these particular 66 books of the Bible were chosen to be part of this um, scripture, right? So why these particular books and not others that may have been written and also read by Christians during the first three or four century uh, after Christ's death and resurrection? That's the topic for today, the canon of scripture. So when we use the word canon, this uh, is translated as, uh, you know, read, uh, or our English word cane comes from, uh, or is derived from this word. And back in the day, um, a, a reed was often used as a measuring rod. So the word canon came to mean some sort of standard or some sort of rule or something that we measure, uh, measure something by. And when we talk about the term canon of scripture, we're talking about, well, what are the standard books that are to be included in the Bible? How did Christians figure out which books to include in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Let's start with the Old Testament. So there's 24 books in the Old Testament, and they come straight from the Hebrew Bible, and they're typically arranged in three different divisions. You have the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, typically understood to be written by Moses. You have the uh, prophets, uh, like Jeremiah and Isaiah, and then you have the writings, uh, such as the Psalms and the Proverbs. And we can even see these three uh, divisions uh, written uh, or even mentioned by, um, uh, by Jesus himself in Luke 24, 44, where Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So these three categories are even acknowledged by Jesus uh, himself. And scholars believe that the formation of the Old Testament canon may have also followed these three kind of stages according to each of these segments of the Bible. That the law of the Torah was first canonized uh, around the fifth century BC uh, when, the, when the Hebrews returned from Babylonian exile. The prophets were then canonized next uh, in the third century BC. And then when these two were closed, everything else was recognized as Holy Scripture. Uh, that was to be recognized was grouped up into this third division, which was closed in the first century AD in the Council of Jamnia. Have you guys ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? This was a big deal a couple uh, decades ago. And the idea behind the Dead Sea Scrolls is that people um, randomly and by chance found really well-preserved um, uh, scrolls of the Old Testament that dated back to third century BC. And at the time, people were really worried about like, well, uh, were the books that were shown, uh, that, that appeared in the Dead Sea Scrolls from, you know, third century BCs, do they contain the same kind of books that we have in our Bible today? Because if it wasn't, then that could be a problem. But if it was, it'd be really wonderful because it kind of confirms that the Bible we have now is the same as the Bible that was uh, back then. And the good news is that it did confirm, right? Uh, thank goodness. <laughs> With the exception of the Book of Esther, the uh, Book of Esther wasn't included in there. And there were also some apocryphal books, like the um, books of Tobit, Jubilees, and uh, Enoch. Have you guys ever heard of those or read those? Those are included in the Roman Catholic canon, but not included in uh, our Protestant canon. Um, and uh, when I was in seminary, my professor said that even though uh, that's not part of our canon, those books actually are a good idea to read. Like, they can still be profitable, even though they're not technically a part of the canon of Scripture. Okay, so that's the Old Testament. Let's talk about the New Testament really quick. And the first point that I want to start off uh, about the New Testament is that Jesus actually wrote nothing in the New Testament. 
right? There's no book in gospel, you know, Jesus didn't write any of it. He taught by word of mouth and by personal example. And some of his followers ended up writing down uh, some of the things that Jesus said and did. And out of that body of knowledge, we have the gospels in the New Testament. So like stuff like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But before the, uh, these gospels were written, it was actually all passed down orally. And um, there are uh, random uh, snippets in uh, the New Testament, such as in Galatians uh, 4.20, when Paul says, when he writes to the Galatians, I really would wish to have said all this thing to you in person. I don't know if you guys have ever remember passages like that. And that makes you wonder because if he actually did get to see the church in Galatia in person, he would never have written this letter to Galatia. And if he never wrote this letter to Galatia, this letter is, would, would have never gotten passed down to us uh, in the canon of Scripture, right? So it's these kind of happen chance situations and circumstances that kind of, you know, not through anyone kind of manipulating this, but just through perhaps uh, my, my belief is the sovereignty and work of God, that the Word of God came to be formed uh, in its way. So Eusebius, uh, the bishop of Caesarea, which is the modern-day Palestine, um, was one of the greatest historians in the history of the church, and he distinguished three categories of uh, different books that were to be uh, considered into the New Testament canon, and he made a distinction between those books in the New Testament that were universally acknowledged, that were disputed, and that were spurious. And spurious, these are books that are un, uh, not considered part of Scripture. They're not canonical. And they included things like the Gospel of Peter. Have you guys ever heard of Gospel of Peter? No, that's because it's not included in the canon, right? Um, it also included other things like the Shepherd of Hermon, the Epistle of Barnabas, and the teachings of the Apostle. And some of this, um, these were um, deemed spurious because they taught theologies uh, such as the Gospel of um, uh, Peter taught that Jesus wasn't really fully man, but just appeared to be man. So, you know, stuff like that, uh, people ruled them out, and the, the church in the first three centuries ruled them out. When Constantine, the emperor, and before I actually mention that, um, you know, there's nowhere in the Bible that actually tells us these are the books that are supposed to be included in the Bible, right? So the stuff actually isn't written in stone, right? And... Um, so the first time that we have a recording of someone actually writing down these are the books of the Bible actually came from um, uh, Constantine. Uh, when Constantine became the emperor of the Roman Empire, he asked this dude Eusebius to put together 50 copies of scripture that can be used for uh, the churches in Constantinople. And it was this occasion when Eusebius actually bothered to write down which books he included in those um, Bibles that he provided to the emperor. And out of that record, that was our first known record of, okay, the New Testament includes all these books. And the books that Eusebius mentioned were all the 27 books that are in the New Testament today. And then, um, and, but interestingly, um, he, he noted that 22 of them are undisputed, um, universally acknowledged, and he noted that there were one, two, three, five books that were disputed. That means some Christians weren't comfortable with it, other Christians were, and those include the book of James, uh, Jude, Second Peter, Second and Third John. And out of these five, the book that was the most disputed is actually Second Peter. Right? We can talk a lot about more, more about this, but I'll, uh, we'll save that for another time. 
So later, um, Athanasius, who's the Bishop of Alexandria, that's in North Egypt, he issued a formal statement about the canon of scripture and he confirmed these 27 books. So this is kind of how people have figured out uh, which books to include. And then 12 centuries later in the Council of Trent, this is one of the, another one of those like kind of, uh, the global church came together for a council and decided on some stuff. They again confirmed uh, the 27 received books and they added by saying um, that uh, all the contents of the New Testament were equally authoritative from the mouth of Christ himself by the apostles or from the apostles themselves at the dictation of the Holy Spirit. And this is an interesting affirmation because it speaks against the potential hierarchy between the word, uh, different parts of the word of God. So um, I think what they're warning against is that we shouldn't view certain parts of scripture uh, as maybe more important than other parts of scripture, that they're all equally authoritative and um, important. So in summary, how did we get the Bible? So we got the Old Testament straight from the Hebrew Bible. And then the books of the New Testament, they weren't formally recognized and listed and confirmed until the third century by Eusebius and Athanasius. And the th important thing to note here is that Eusebius and Athanasius, their affirmation was actually not based on their own authority, but based on uh, the testimony and practice of the early church. Right? So on, on, on what they said is uh, what has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. And this leads us, and we're going to start landing the point. I know I've kind of nerded you guys out. And I noticed that you guys are still kind of attentive, so thank you for that. <laughs> um, and, um, but the thing to, that I want to point out is that the, the Bible came to be not because some random dudes just kind of shaped and formed and manipulated the Bible to sound like and look like the way they wanted to look like. Rather, it was the opposite, where it wasn't people shaping the word of God. It was actually the word of God shaping the church and shaping people. And based on the testimony and the practice and the use of the word of God by the first three centuries of churches, um, Eusebius and Athanasius uh, made their conclusions. Right. So, that leads us to maybe, uh, so I wanted to leave you guys with three uh, implications, or reflections, or applications of this, you know, highly uh, kind of nerdy, scholarly conversation onto our real life. And the first one is this. We don't shape or form the Word of God, right? It's actually the Word of God that shapes and forms us. And as a church, we need to be vigilant of uh, human sinful nature and our tendency to want to use the Bible and want to interpret the Bible to our own end, to support our own agenda, to support our own self-interest, and to uh, justify our predetermined beliefs and worldview. And I would suggest that things like shaping God and the Bible out of our own image, whether that's our you know, um, cultural image or uh, other, uh, other dimensions of our image, I think that's related to the, what the Old Testament talks about when it talks about idolatry, right? And the fundamental idea behind idolatry is that even though humans are supposed to be shaped in God's image, that God, sometimes out of human sinful nature, will be shaped by humans in their own image. And that's why, again, we have in our church a teaching team of eight to, different, eight to ten different people, men and women, um, from different ethnic backgrounds and different perspectives because we each have our own blind spots. And by having multiple voices, our hope 
is that we can cover each other's blind spots so that the word of God, when it's preached in our church, it's not skewed to just one person's perspective, and it's not skewed to just one demographic group's perspective and self-interest as well. My second landing point is this, and I think this has been illustrated beautifully by the worship team, so thanks for that. Um, one of the fathers of modern African Christian theology, Kwame Bediako, and guys, I've, I went to seminary, I got a THM in seminary, and I'm just catching up on global perspectives on theology because all the studying that I've done here in the West has not exposed me to anything other than theologians from the West, and that's something that I'm catching up uh, because I never had an opportunity to, to study these things. But Kwame Bediako, he admonishes all of us to read the Bible in our native tongue. And he points out that, well, unless you're Greek or Hebrew, none of us are actually reading scripture from its original language, right? And there's nothing magical about the English language, and there's nothing magical about the English translation of the language, right? Um, so he asserted that language liberates us. And he reflected on his own story about how himself, uh, he, he grew up in um, Western Africa, the Francophone, um, uh, Francophone Africa, and he reflected how studying French actually took him away from being African. So um, that's why, you know, starting five or six years ago, I'm starting Chinese again, and I'm starting to try to pray in Chinese and be more useful when I'm overseas uh, in the summers, um, because uh, there's, that, that's still my heart language, even though my Chinese is horrible and I can't preach or teach in it right now. And that's also why we are urgently praying for the Lord to provide our church with a greater capacity for not just tra Spanish translation, but for us to actually preach the word of God in Spanish and to have that translated to English. Because so many of us here, um, our native tongue is Spanish, and so many of us here in our neighborhood, uh, their native uh, tongue is Spanish as well. And we want our Latinx brothers and sisters to hear the word of God preached in their native tongue as well. If we want to be a, a church for this neighborhood and for this community, we, we believe we have to do that. So we're providing for um, God to provide us uh, gifts and capacity to be able to pull that off in the near uh, future. The last thing I want to point out is uh, I want to talk a little bit about tradition as it relates to the Word of God and about the importance of tradition in the Christian faith. And I know that we live in a culture that is very understandably skeptical of tradition because of the many ways that tradition has been abused in the past to hurt people. And many of us hope often, and I found myself in this situation as well, we hope that the word of God can correct and stand up to tradition when tradition has lost its way. And, and throughout church history, that has certainly happened. But today, I also want to point out that the very formation of scripture, it's also based on tradition as well. It's not this black and white either or kind of thing where it's like, I stand for the word of God and, you know, and, I, and I'm against tradition. Scripture and, the word of, uh, scripture and tradition are actually interrelated with um, one another. So when we interpret the word of God, we can't interpret in isolation, thinking that we here in America know, know where it's at and know how to interpret this stuff. If we are to understand scripture deeply, we also need to um, interpret it alongside all the Christians that came before us for the last two century, uh, two, uh, two millennia. And we also need to interpret alongside our brothers and sisters around the world, right? Um, and that's part of the reason why I'm traveling so much is uh, for us, for me to contribute to the, the flourishing of 
um, Christianity here in this context by bringing and bridging the riches and the insight and the wisdom of Christianity around the world uh, back here because we need it uh, as well. So to close our time, I'd like us to consider and reflect on the following question. How was today's conversation about the Bible for you? And how is it similar or different from the way you learned about what the Bible is uh, growing up, either in church or not growing up in church or being new to the faith? How might all the stuff we've talked about today been similar or different than what you've learned?